I'm Eric. I'm Lucas. And we are the Modern Agronomists. We are putting a modern spin on an old industry. All right, welcome back, guys. Today we have Wade Omakin, Senior Agronomic Solutions Advisor for BASF. Thanks for joining us today, Wade. Yeah, thanks for having me. Could why don't you give a little background where you come from and what you do for BASF? So I uh, I run around the state of Wisconsin for BASF. Um, my my background uh, was in biology. Um, I did my undergraduate and my graduate work at the University of Green Bay. I studied in Alaska, New Zealand. I did my doctorate work in Colorado, and I've been with BASF for about 10 years now. So Wade, let's just get a brief overview of 2022 and some of the things you've learned because of that growing season. So it still matters where you are in the state. You know, so Wisconsin's got uh, you know a lot of variants to it. So we've got the real sand areas. We've got the, what, let's call it the, you know, the the dairy belt, you know, so it's this clay belt that basically runs from, let's take Chippewa Falls or that Kadat area, like kind of on the western side of the state. And it runs, you know, horizontal all the way across almost to, you know, just north of you guys. And so that's, you know, it used to be an old mountain range, actually. And so as the glaciers came down and wiped out Canada and came down into uh, Wisconsin, kind of just kind of halted right there. And when it receded back, it filled in that mountain range with all the stuff that it crushed up on the way. So that's why you find a bunch of old rocks, really hard bedrock, you know, portions across that clay belt because that's where all that stuff got deposited. So it just kind of filled in a bunch of those gaps. So there's locations there that'll have like 90 feet of red clay. And then you go right down to bedrock. And then you got about eight inches of topsoil on top of it. And that topsoil just blew in from Canada too when there was no trees, there's no nothing there. So those areas of the state, you know, had, you know, a certain year. And then you got the Western counties that had, you know, the sand uh, problems that they always do. Like there's a portion down by like, um, like the Verona area that's been in a drought for like the last four years, but just no one kind of really talks about it. Like they just, they're just getting crushed down there. They've had a really rough go of it. And then, you know, you guys are blessed to have Lake Winnebago here. You've got the Horicon Marsh. You've got all this water on this side. And then you've got water on the east side. So you guys hold a lot of, you know, extra precipitation as it comes marching across. You guys had beautiful growing conditions this year. You know, so this kind of eastern, kind of south eastern area had really nice, you know, 2022. You go north of that, not so much. That clay belt had a really rough go of it. And then that kind of southwest, you know, had a lot of drought, you know, portions of it. And it came at the wrong time. It came during that August time period. And that, that didn't help the soybeans any. They didn't have the corn any. So those guys kind of took a hit on that. And if we take a step back and we look at, all right, so 22 had, you know, a little bit of variance, which we all should have a little bit of variance to it. Our evening temperatures dictate how our crops go. You know, so we've got a relatively short growing season. And so, you know, a lot of our corn and bean rotations, let's just take the forage guys out of it for right now. You've got corn and beans. Corn likes it when it's nice and warm during the day and cool in the evening. You know, it can store up extra water, build up, you know, a little bit of pressure inside that to move, you know, nutrients throughout that plant. Well, soybeans don't like that. Soybeans, if you give them the opportunity, some varieties will grow even during the evenings, you know, when they're, you know, it's hot and muggy, like you get the windows closed and you're like, oh, I turn on the air conditioning overnight. Soybeans love that. Corn, not so much. You know, so no matter where you're at for any of those years, you're going to have, you know, your corn being a little bit better and your beans are going to be a little bit low. And then they'll flip-flop, you know, mattering on what kind of weather you get for those areas. Well, 21 
was a really nice soybean year, you know, growing season for most of the state. Well, this last year we had, you know, what, three 90-degree days, and we didn't have one evening temperature over, over 75 degrees. So guys are like, oh, I did the exact same stuff as last year. I spent, you know, X amount on my commodities, you know, all my fertilizer, and my soybeans went down about 10%. Well, it wasn't any of their faults. You know, some of the, the issues that we saw with, you know, what the spring gave us, we'll go over some of that. But for the most part, they should have seen that. Corn should have been a little bit higher this year. Beans should have been a little bit lower just because of what the weather gave to us off of it. So those kind of like little nuances that you see it dance around the year, you know, weather plays a bigger role than we give it credit for, you know, not just throwing stuff at it. And I think growers are, you know, not to throw them under the bus, but they forget that, you know, the weather dictates 99% of what, what comes off the field. And they forget that we didn't get rain in August or we got too much rain in August or what, what have you. Right. And those tiny little, you know, patches during, you know, reproductive stages really make a big difference. Cause I always give the guys the example for like your corn, once they get to reproductive stage, right? So the tassels, you know, the pollen's out. Think of it as like a big bathtub, right? So you got this bathtub and I've got a faucet going into it. And the faucet is running 24 hours a day, right? Filling up that bathtub. Once my faucet turns off, that's all the water that's going to be in that bathtub. So that's what happens to your cob, you know, as it starts filling up with that starch. It's, you know, dedicating all the food that it's stored for that entire year. Faucet's running into those cobs. Once that turns off, or if it slows down, so if you taper down the amount of water going into it, so if you taper down the amount of water going into that plant to move nutrients through it, or even move or mobilize some of the nutrients that are already inside that plant, it slows down your bathtub. You only get so high. You know, so some years we'll see like these, I call them deadheads, but you got that little strip on the top of that, you know, corn cob. You know, on the very top, you've always got the smallest kernels anyway, because she starts filling from the bottom, goes all the way up to the top. And on those really beautiful years where you've got Nice, cool evening temperatures, you get enough water, fills it right up to the top. And so, you know, if you think about that, that corn crop or you think about any of these crops, they're not using, they're like, they're not drinking this water. They're using that water to basically filter out the nutrients that are coming through. So I'm using, let's say, 1% of the water that comes through me, and I'm just flushing everything else out as fast as possible. It's coming out of my leaves, coming out of the stomatas, blowing that water out of that plant just to filter out a little bit of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, that's all I'm looking for. I don't want the water. I just need it to be dissolved that I can go find it. Well, if I slow down the mode of water or if I lose a couple leaves artificially, now I can only fill up the bathtub so fast. And so that really makes a bigger deal when we're looking at like the higher level. You know, you want to get, you know, your corn crop, you know, above 250 or you want to get your beans above, you know, even 85 bushels, right? Once you get to those higher ends, like the amount of leaf mass that you actually have at the end of the year and how much water is going through the plant makes a huge difference. I can get you to like 50, 60, 70 bushels soybeans without, you know, much difficulty. Once you start getting over that, you need either a little bit of luck, but you've got to know the importance of, you know, leaf mass and the amount of nutrients that are coming through there and when you're feeding this stuff or when it's actually, you know, mobilizing that. And when those guys had that August little drought, even though it was for what, eight, 12 days, that made a really big difference off it. Well, relative maturities and either corner beans make a huge difference based on that weather cycle too if it if we're or not so much or you're kind of set the way it is no so i i love that question so i like with, let's just take soybeans right so just for your relative maturity we'll take corn out of it for right now so you've got let's say you're in the middle of part of the state and you're like i'm i'm typically you know one right 
I always tell guys, buffer yourself out by about a half maturity. You know, so like a one four, one five, one six. You know, so you're balancing out the amount of risk to it. You know, so if I've got a year where I can only take so much nutrients, you know, through me, I only got so much water off of it. You know, I had a cool spring, so I started out a little bit slower. That those younger maturities are gonna overproduce, you know, compared to those longer maturity off. So you're gonna still take the chance of like, hey, if it's a beautiful year. You know, it's 90 degrees in the evening temperatures and I get like, let's say five or even six of those. I'll take that all day and that one six versus that one is going to kick its butt like every single time. And this is why if you ever go watch the plots, you know, some guys will just bounce around for different numbers and they're like, oh, well, you know, in the plot just down the road for me, the one four, that was the ticket. That's the variety. That's the one I want to plant. And they're like, that's, that's the only one that I want. I can plant the whole farm to that. It's too much risk because you can literally go back the same varieties the year before, you know, in the similar area of it, maybe the one one or the one oh or like a one eight one, you know, mattering on what the weather is giving you. That's gonna dictate those maturities, you know. So following two religious on past years uh, winners doesn't help you dictate that success on your own farm. You know, spread out that amount of risk. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you think about your soybeans, there's a there's a bunch of different, you know, tricks to go with those soybeans off it. But I want to get to 22 nodes. You know, so you count every node on that main stem, right? So you count the cotyledon, the unifoliate, those usually fall off. You don't get any elongation on them. But you want 22 nodes. If you're going to your soybean plants and you're not counting 22 nodes on that main stem, you're either not planting early enough, you're planting too long of a maturity off of it, or you've got, you know, you're either crowding them or you've got some planting issue off it. But 22 is the goal you should be setting for yourself. When these guys are falling short and they're like, hey, I just can't get over that 45 bushel or 50 bushel threshold, I usually take these guys, go back and go count your nodes, and they're somewhere in the 15s, 16s. So I've either got stressed roots, I've got, you know, late plantings off of it, or I'm planting the wrong variety, you know, maturities off of it. So So I guess if if you were to recommend a, a procedure as to how a grower were to pick a variety, how would they go about that? So like, how do you choose? How would you choose for your farm? So it's funny. So, you know, BASF sells seed. You should just buy Zetavo seeds. That'll solve all your problems, right? (laughs) 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 Or Cardenz too. You buy those too. I got some really good ones to sell you. They work every time. They're foolproof. (laughs) If we stayed on that, I got a first time grower. You rented 40 acres. Just, uh, you know, just a kid. You know, I'm, I'm an old man now. So everybody younger than me is a kid. So I can finally say that. Rents 40 acres. His old man plants them for him. They harvest them. They spray their own stuff. I'm like, hey, this is the one variety. You only got 40 acres. Let's not split it into three different varieties because that's usually what I recommend. Split it into three varieties. Spread out your risk. Plants it to one variety. I'm like, this is your variety. This is the one you choose. First time grower. Rents all his stuff. Buys all the, the spray. Everything pays his old man even. 87 bushels is what he averaged across the field. And he's like, I don't know what these guys are complaining about. Growing soybeans is so easy. And you're like, you should just stop right now. Like, just quit 87 bushels for a farm average, you know, just on 40 acres. Still isn't too bad. He could be going around town and be like, hey, this Credence 1660, all you got to do is plant that variety. That wasn't, that isn't what the success came from. That 1660 is a beautiful variety. You can plant that one anywhere you want. Real robust. That isn't, that isn't the right answer at there. The things that he did right was we looked at the roots. We looked at what the elongation was going to happen, where his shortcomings were. There are strip-till guys, and not saying that strip-till is you know, fixing any of this stuff. But when we looked at that farm, his old man's farm, years and years ago, like probably seven, eight years ago, 
we identified his shortcoming. And his shortcoming was is that his roots weren't elongating properly. And so think of like soybean, soybean roots are just miserable. Like I love soybeans to death, but like, dude, like just grow some better roots. So you think of that main taproot as a carrot, right? And that main carrot, as it's coming down, that diameter, once it hits something hard, it's going to try and punch through it, right? You know, so if I'm growing down and let's say I'm a, a, not to throw turbo tail under the bus, but we'll throw turbo tail under the bus, right? You go do some spring tillage, right? I'm going to go fluff that soil up. And it's mildly wet out there and you go fluff that soil up. Wherever that turbo tail doesn't hit, let's say you go down two inches, at 2.1 inches, you didn't hit that stuff, right? And so that soil is going to dry out at a different rate than the stuff that you tilled above it, right? So if you dry out at a different rate, you're going to make two different hardnesses. So now if I plant it a half inch down, the moment that half inch seedling hits that two inch line, which is an inch and a half, what's it going to hit? Something harder, right? And if it's growing relatively slow, it's mildly wet during the time, it's not elongating you know, very aggressively, that amount of turgor pressure is going to exhibit a hormone. And that hormone is called ethylene. And at that growing point, it's like, well, if I can't grow through this, it pushes and pushes to a point and that ethylene is, you know, expressed at the tip of that growing up point of that root. And it's, um, it's called the triple response mechanism. And so the, the root wants to grow out, back and around, you know, so if I hit a rock, I don't want to grow through a rock and there's no brain telling me which way to, to grow. And inside that cell, all like the, you know, think of it as a nice little glob, right? And you've got the nucleus in there. You've got the Golgi apparatus. You got all this guts inside this cell, right? The stuff is still governed by gravity. So all that stuff sinks down to the bottom. So now the plant knows what's up and it knows what's down. So it knows it wants to put its shoot up and it wants to put its root down. Well, it only wants to grow perfectly straight down. So it's growing perfectly straight down, hits something hard. It's going to grow out back and around. And the moment does it is that that soybean root will taper that carrot and it'll make it into like a spear. And the moment that happens, it will never widen out again. That's it. That's all you get. And the guys that get to a hundred bushels or let's say even over 80 bushels, the, the amount of carrot that you can get on a soybean plant is about four inches. It's the biggest one I've seen in Wisconsin. I'm sure you could do it a little bit bigger. I've got some in the greenhouse and they're still like beautiful, you know, potted soil, like no variance in the horizon at all. It's about four inches. So now you're telling me that, you know, you go down an inch, maybe an inch and a half and you put on this drastic taper. And now it's got like this pencil point on it. And now all of the nodes coming south of that or down from that, don't have the proper elongation. They don't get any nodulation on them. So they're just absorbing water, which is fine, but they ain't getting any nitrogen. They ain't finding any good nutrient. They ain't you know, taking any of those nodules on there. So now you're telling me an inch and a half root versus a four inch root is going to get you the same amount of food going through that plant. It's nothing to do with variety, nothing whatsoever. It's like the first step. You're like, let's go look at your roots. You fix your roots. You can do that with any variety. I can make the same variety. That's why when you go across all these different plots across the state, you're like, well, that same variety did 92 bushels here, and then I got it 45 bushels across the road. Well, go look at the ruts. That's literally the first thing we go look at it, and you're like, well, there's a difference. It's not the variety. So guys love picking varieties because not that everything is the farmer's fault off of it. It's sometimes just mother's nature. That's just what you got. But sometimes, or most of the time, it is literally the first step is the root step. That's what you fix. So I can do it with any variety you want. But you fix that first, and then you can go on to step two. So fix the practice before the product. Correct. There's way more issues we've got besides you know picking varieties, and I will still I'll I'll give them that there will be different um, diameter of plants. You know, so if I plant 
Let's go back to the Creden 1660. So a beautiful bean. It's old. Like it's like six or seven years old. Very robust plant, right? I know I love when they're like, oh, I got an offensive plant. I got a def-. Like all that's just crap. Like your plant, I can make dance any which way you want. I planted at 40,000 populations. I can make like the seventh node elongate into branches. If I plant it at 200,000, the elongation is going to happen probably somewhere around that third or fourth node off of it. Doesn't matter on the right. Doesn't matter if it's bushy or if it's offensive, defensive off of it. We just like putting those terms on things for the characteristics that we see. And most of the guys are planting at 140. I can tell you most of our high yield plots are somewhere in the 80s. It's 80 to 100,000. That's proper elongations. We can go into like like the importance of the the node elongations. You know how the distance they should be in the leaf mass that you should be having off of it. Those are that's a different argument off of it. But that portion of that plant will modify itself dictated on the amount of pressure. If I got a weedy field, it's going to do something different. If I plant it too heavy, it's going to look like this. It doesn't matter what the variety is. If I plant it thin, it's going to look like this. You know, So mattering on what you're looking for, there is certain varieties that'll have a little bit more um, gene expression in you know, robust roots. There'll be a little bit more gene expression on like this one. If you plant it at 80,000, you can get a little bit bigger around the plant. But maybe it's going to take water a little more aggressive and if it does that, maybe I don't want to put it in sand. Maybe I don't want to put it in clay. So there is some varietal difference. It's minute, but it, it does exist. But I think we put way too much, um, not credence, but and not, it's, I don't want to say credibility either. We put too much emphasis on the precursor of like, this one's only good on sand. This one's only good on clay. This one's you know the, a bushy plant. This one's a tall plant. Like those characteristics form at different situations in different soil types at different populations. Those kind of things that you can flesh out and do with a lot of different varieties off mm-hmm. it. So don't don't take the the magic, uh, you know, flashy right. variety off it. Pick out the ones, solve the problems first. But you gotta know what the problems are. Can you manipulate plant height in soybeans? Yes you can. So think of it um if I got a happy plant, right? So I kill all the weeds. I plant my soybeans, let's say I even plant a little bit late, somewhere between May 15th and May 30th. And that's not super late. That's perfectly fine. That Those dates, you could still potentially, if we got a warm September, you could still get to 22 bush or 22 nodes, right? Pre-May 15th, it's a lot easier. So I plant somewhere between May 15th, May 30th. No weeds on the field. I plant at, let's say, an inch, right? Not a whole lot of hard pack. I didn't do a turbo till off it. Plant comes up, how tall is that plant? It's two inches tall every single time. So plant's like, this is the dedicated height. I want to be two inches tall. So I don't spray, so I don't even spray any chemicals on it yet. So I had sprayed just straight Roundup or something. Like there's just nothing out there. No 15s, no, nothing else that I can absorb into like the shorten up. Every node after that soybean plant, if I went and handpicked all the weeds, every node on that one plant would be two inches two inches, two inches, two inches between each one of those nodes. And when that plant gets going, it's three to five days for a new node to grow. But a happy plant, this is a great thing to remember. If you're ever going to write down anything, this is what you write down, is that a happy soybean plant has got two inches between the nodes. Like you see that very uniform, I don't care what variety you got, sometimes we can artificially shorten them up and that's not bad. Like I'd rather have a shorter plant than a longer plant. You can do it with... You know, some group 15s will even artificially shorten them up. You know, like you pull that soybean plant, you're like, well, the first one from the the dirt to the my cotyledon was two inches. The next two were, you know, sub two inches, like half inch, half inch. But the problem is, is that um, 
we do, we've got a couple different experiments for white mold, right? And one of the experiments is that we do is that we spray um, a PPO. Um, you could do Phoenix, Cobra, like we don't have to throw any uh, trade names out there, but like a PPO, right? And you spray that PPO during the R1 phase, right? So it's just coming out its first flower. And so the first flower is the closest one to the dirt, most highest likelihood of getting you know, smoked by white mold, right? When I spray that PPO on it, it's going to react with the leaves and it's going to, you know, it looks like it burns the leaves, right? Get a little necrosis on it, a little bit of browning off of it. And what happens is the water leaves those leaves and they kind of flex down. So now sunlight and wind can come in between those rows and you're going to remove some of the humidity into that area. And you're like, all right, mushrooms don't like growing in like where it's super windy or where you get some ozone into there. Maybe the mushrooms just won't pop during that time period. And then as the plant gets taller, the flowers will pop. There won't be any mushrooms off there, you know, for a period of time. But if you don't come back after 14 days and do something to those leaves, you'll lose about 10 bushels every time. So we've done this since 2015, and I can tell you it's almost every single time. So what we do, it's not to sell Preaxer. BASF makes Preaxer. That's a disclaimer here. But headline in Preaxer, um, you know, we like calling it plant health. Like that's good for the label off of it. There is a little bit of modification of an expression of the hormone ethylene, the same one that was doing the root thing, is that it will slow down respiration in that plant the water will build back up those leaves. Those leaves just, they flex back out. You're like, ah, oh, it's the greening effect. Well, those leaves are, they're just full of water and the chloroplast, they come back, they turn green, they pop back out. Well, the reason that's important and the reason any of this is important off of this is that if we think that our happy plant is two inches, two inches, two inches, you know, for each one of those nodes, when a node starts getting canopied over the top of, right? You know, so like the first cotyledons come out, they're really poor at taking in you know, photosynthesis, right? And so this is why the next set of leaves is a single set of leaves because it's like, I don't, I don't have to spend much money. I get a set of leaves out there. I can take in some photosynthesis. I can start getting food from the sun. I don't have to rely on like literally my seed coming out of the ground to do all the heavy lifting for me. The next one above that is a trifoliate. So it's got three set of leaves, taking in a whole bunch of food, taking in a, you know, a whole bunch of good stuff, right? Plants really going to start growing at this point. Well, those leaves down there, they're like, hey, not a care in the world. Nobody's shading over the top of me, although there's no competition around me. I plant them thin enough that my neighbor isn't shading on me at this point. You get to the fourth node. You get to the fifth node. You get to the sixth node. They're like super, super happy. All right? And by the seventh node, now my neighbor starts to shade on top of me. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't like that. All right? So maybe I'm going to elongate to get a little bit taller than him. Well, at that point, too, my leaves, my seventh node, is now shading over the top of my lower ones. And that partial shading from any of your neighbors or any of your own leaves makes that plant freak out. It's like, hey, I didn't have a care in the world. I was accumulating food at this point. So number three, four, five, and six, those nodes are the only you know trifoliates down there, like the unifoliate and that cotyledon. They didn't store enough food. They can't make hormones fast enough. And there's a hormone called cytokinin, and there's a couple other ones that elongate, but those are the ones that elongate the branches. And so if you ever look at a soybean plant, you know, kind of got that Christmas tree idea. If I plant somewhere between, say, 100,000 to 150,000, the elongators, the ones that are going to make that tree on the bottom, that's three, four, five, and six. And if I spray cobra on top of those leaves, seven, you know, all the way down is exposed. You know, usually it's the seventh node or the eighth node that it's exposed. If those leaves don't fold back out, they don't get enough food and they can't make enough hormone, they don't elongate. It's worth 10 bushels. That's it.
So the, all of those nodes down there, those are the oldest nodes that we've got. You're like, those should be the biggest beans down there. Well, they don't just accumulate beans. They're like, I, I'm not going to spend my money on beans here. I got to get around these guys. They're shading over the top of me. I've got to get past them. They spend all of their money on getting past them. It's only worth 10 bushels. So 60% of your yield on a soybean plant comes from the seventh node to the 13th node because those are the oldest nodes that don't elongate. They accumulate all that food. And so instead of trying to stretch out, they're like, just feed me. That's, this is, you're going to get the biggest beans, the biggest pods off of it. Those are the ones that you want to really have all of the nutrients, everything go into it. Right? So the only reason this really matters, you're 7 to 13, I defy any, anybody that when you're looking at your soybean plants this next year, even just for populations off of it, go look at the spacing between your 7th and your 13th node and tell me how many are 2 inches. If they're 2 inches apart, you're doing it right. If they're two and a half, three inches, four, I've seen eight inches between some of these. It's too thick. You're not maximizing that area of your soybean plant because think of it as like, um, like silly putty, right? You know, we all played silly putty as a kid. You stretchy stuff, you throw it on newspapers, take out that portion of it, take a wad of silly putty in your hands and just kind of stretch it out. And as you pull it apart, what happens? It thins out in the middle of it, right? Well, that soybean plant is like, I'm going to give you, I'm budgeting for two inches, you get past that, we're going to stretch out. I'm going to give you more materials. I'm not going to keep the same diameter as we keep going up. So like some years you'll see guys are like, hey, I just got these short, fat plants. They're like, oh, they just really, really yield, right? I want a stout soybean variety. Nothing to do with that. It's, ver- it's population at this point. And if you got proper elongation off of it, you make a big stout soybean plant. I don't need tall. I need fat and wide because I can shed more water faster. I can fill up that bathtub faster. And if 7 through 13 is relatively close to that 2 inches spacing off there, it's the most you can pump through those plants. And then it's whatever Mother Nature can give to you. And when we get the guys that can irrigate, then you just pour it to it. Like 80,000, 90,000 population, that's all you need. Pour it right to it. Pour some water on them as long as you're not getting you know white mold during this time period. That's all you got to do. It's relatively simple, but it's 2 inches, 2 inches, 2 inches, 2 inches. If you start elongating past that, you get thinner and thinner. And if you ever stretch out that plant... Take all the leaves off, lay it on the back of your tailgate or on, you know, piece of paper, and you'll see when it gets past that two inches, you lose pods, and they get thinner, and the beans get smaller, and it gets smaller and smaller, and pretty soon by the end of that plant, you're like, well, there's hardly anything there, which is fine, but if that stretches out and they start getting thinner and thinner from 7 to 13, then you've got problems. Is that, is that where you'll see lodging then too, if we do start stretching out that right. part? Right, yep. So I will give you lodging. You could get it early on if I plant too thick or if I got early weed pressure. If I get um, the bottom nodes, let's say from like, even from number two, because the first one's going to come out at two inches, like, because it doesn't know. There's nothing above it to sense the amount of, you know, sunlight coming into it. So the first one's going to be two inches. But if you start stretching out on the second, the third, the fourth, those usually make a a small, wimpy plant. Those ones lodge relatively easy. If I stretch out on, you know, nine, 10, 11, those nodes, not, not, so, not much. Okay. so much. That makes sense. We did a lot of, um, I wouldn't say a lot. We did some trials with twin row wheat. Um, and then you threw soybeans in the middle of it. Where the wheat was tall, uh, no bueno. Like it, those, those soybeans stretched out too much. We had some of those were six inches between the notes. Like it's got the capabilities of doing it, but they just tip over. They tip over into the wheat stubble, which is fine, but they ain't doing, you know, 70, 80 bushels either. They're doing like 35, 40. So with the, some of that being said, is there a row spacing that 
is more advantageous to plant soybeans in that doesn't cause overcrowding, but still gives them the room to grow? Well, in theory. So I, everybody's got a favorite one, right? I've seen, I've seen uh, circle ones. There's a guy up by um, Ocano Falls that I went to go, or Ocanto uh, one year, that planted in a circle with a brilliant cedar. It was awesome. It was like, where's your rose? Like, you know, no rose, just beans. Oh, I thought it was fantastic. And they yielded X amount, not anywhere close to 70, 80 bushels, but it was neat. I, I don't know if I'd recommend it for everybody. And you've got seven and a half. You've got, I've seen 12 and a half. I've seen 15. I've seen 30s. We've tried 60s this last year. Just see how big a plant. Like my goal is I want a 45 pound plant. Like we're trying to do it in the greenhouse. I can get to 35 nodes in the greenhouse. I just, I'm, I'm close. I'm not, I'm not all the way there. Yet. We're a few more tricks. It's just, it's a huge plant. It looks like a Christmas tree. So you can do it in all of those systems. The problem is, is that you go to seven and a half with like one of those cedars, like that sucker's a glorified spill. Like you're just, you're, you're just hoping to close the furrow at that point. You're like, just throw them out there. And if I was planting later, if I was planting June 1st, you know, we had what, three years ago where we were all planting June 1st because it was just horrible wet year. That probably would have been the best planting for that time period for those given um, situations. But on a normal year where I can get in early, it's probably somewhere between that 15 and 30 inch. You can do it with either one of those. I, for the last, what, three years, the highest yielding plots that we've got to see um, with consistency is somewhere between that 80 to 100,000. But that is not for everybody. Like that, you don't start with that. You start with your roots, then you start with your leaves after that, then you can go and start messing around with populations. You know, so if you... Like, that's like phase three. You don't go into phase three. You're like, oh, I'll just change my varieties. And he said plant it to 80,000. And now you're, you drop 10, 15 bushels. You're like, where is that guy? And go find that guy. <laughs> that's not the answer. There's a series of um, things you've got to fix first or at least make better. And then you can start modifying those populations. But I, I am a sole believer that we will only go down in population in soybeans. Yeah. I think that's the way it's kind of been trending anyways. Because we even get some years where, like this last year, um, you know, so you take two years ago, we had beautiful, dry conditions. Guys were planting in, like there was dust flying when guys were planting. You usually don't get to see that very often. Last year, you know, mattering on where you were, you had a little bit of wet, you know, a little bit of timing issues on when you were going to be planting off of it. I had some guys that, you know, it just, they didn't close the furrow. You spray chemical, certain chemicals, you cannot touch the seed. You touch the seed, the seed dies, Right. So they didn't close the furrow completely and they had, you know, look like broken teeth going across this field coming up and they're like, oh, let's replant. Like I planted at 160,000 and I've only got well, 74,000 coming up. I'm like, no, 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 let's leave it. It's a good experiment. It was the highest yielding soybean plant that they ha- or field that they had on their farm. They planted everything else, but they left, you know, it was like, a, I think it was like a 67 acre field, but they left that broken tooth one. And it was somewhere in the 70s, and it was the highest yielding field off it. Granted, it was planted, you know, a week and a half earlier than everybody else, but that wasn't the detriment off of it. They still didn't get, you know, four inch, you know, they were somewhere in that two inch range for their the carrot coming down off it. So there was still room for improvement, but that was the better situation off it. So it's it's what Mother Nature gives to you, but some of those that come up late and they're, they look like broken teeth, sometimes they're not a complete loss. I think we just, everybody likes seeing like the high, Big soybeans. Like I walked through my soybean plants and it should be right up to my armpits. Like those are bad soybean plants. Like it's just, it's too much vegetation growth for what you're getting out of your beans. Yeah. It's funny you say that. You go talk 
to anybody and they're like, yeah, the beans look really good. They're real tall, but tall, <laughs> tall doesn't mean anything. Right. No, it really means nothing. And I still argue with guys too, is they're like, I don't want to plant it 30 inch rows and I don't want to plant at 80,000 population because I'm not closing the furrow or I'm not closing the, the rows. They're like, you know, we all battle water hemp, you know, and I will agree that partial shading off of it later in the season will suppress some of them, but not all of them. You know, they'll still grow just with heat units and low amount of sunlight coming through there. But if I can put enough residual out there to kill my water hemp, I don't actually want to close my furrows. I want that extra sunlight coming in as much as possible to hit the sides of my plants, not just the top of my plants, so I don't over-elongate. And I think we're finally getting some of that shift as we're getting higher and higher yields. That's some of the tricks. Don't, you know, you don't have to close that row. You know, if you're doing it because it's a necessity and you don't want to spend an extra like $15 on chemical, like that's perfectly fine, but you're, you're giving up yield to do that. So the amount of yield that you're probably giving up probably is more than what you would have spent on chemical control. You know, so having good residuals and not closing that row off of it, there's probably something there. How big is crop rotation on some of these big yields? Are you, are you still in a corn bean rotation or are we trying to get away from soybeans for four or five years? So I've got a couple of good stories with that one. So I personally, like I want a uniform horizon, right? I want my soil to all dry at similar time periods, right? If I get two-inch rainfall, I know that the surface is going to dry a little bit faster just because of like wind and you, know, you get a little bit of sunlight heating off it. But that heat doesn't go down very far into that soil. Like, you know, you're talking half inch. Like I did, um, I did a graduate uh, project um, where we stuck um, uh, temperature sensors into the dirt and I stuck them a half inch, an inch down. And we took a fire over the top of it. We wanted to see if it was going to kill insects you know, that were in the dirt or in the roots at the time period. And the amount of dissipation of heat just from that fire going through there at a half inch was dang near all of it. It was amazing, amazing. You know, so all these insects made it through, like no no harm, no foul off it. So that heat takes a long time to heat that soil up off it. But if I can get, you know, the bulk of my top four inches to dry at the same rate, I'm not going to get any weird hardness off of there. So if I don't get any of that weird hardness off, obviously I'm going to get more elongation. So where are you going to get that from? Like if I had, you know, if I'm a furrow guy, right? You know, I'm, deep, I'm going to plow the crap out of this ground off and I'm bringing up clumps of clay, even that little clay, like that ain't going to go back down that bottom eight inches. Like that's going to be in that top, you know, four inches, almost perpetuity. Mm-hmm. With that in there, that's going to dry at different temperatures. You're going to have different hardness portions of it. You're going to have the amount of stover on there. I need something that's going to put punch holes through my ground. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer of cover crops. Like I love the cover crop idea. It's just that we live in Wisconsin. It's hard to get them out after a lot of our crops. So not that we're considering wheat to cover crop, but I love planting soybeans after wheat. Not, you know, everybody loves planting corn off of it. I like planting soybeans after it because I've got more than four inches of penetration from that rotting root mass. And I'm just, I'm going to just drill right into them, right? I'm going to plant it at, let's say, half inch or an inch of my soybean plants. I get all these puncture holes. So now I've got a little bit more aeration into my soil off there. It's easier to close that furrow because I got structure inside that. And now you got all these decomposing roots. Maybe that's going to give me a little bit of extra nutrients. I'm not banking on any of that. But I want the puncture holes off of it. And I think this is why in our area, like strip till does so well. And it's still not perfect. Like there are still shortcomings of strip till, but I've got patches of, you know, dirt that's going to get, you know, mixed up. Like I'm still going to have the issues where, you know, how deep I'm going and how wet that soil is. But right next to it, 
I got something that I could literally have growing the entire year. I could have clovers out there. I could have, you know, even just any, you know, vegetation off of that area that's just undisturbed over time that's going to unify that so- or stabilize that soil where you know, water goes through it, air goes through it. That portion of uniformity of that soil makes a huge, huge difference on that that impact of that plant off of it. So I, corn beans, corn beans, like you're a cash cropper, that's what you got to do. Nobody wants to just go buy some specialized you know equipment to just plant wheat off of it. But I love, I love planting after wheat. I love having any sort of cover crop off of it. If I can go, like there's, you know, we're blessed in this area. You know, gradually you guys get a little bit of windmills into this area, but you've got aerial applicators that'll even go and fly over the top of the, these areas 14 days before the crop is taken off. Just throw some, you know, cereal ride, just something simple. All you got to do is get the root mass. I don't care what it looks like above ground, just four inches below the root mass. That's all I need. I don't need much of it. But I also had another guy. He was over by Marshfield. And so the far, uh, the old man had the farm for, you know, eons, right? And he had a, oh, I think it was like a 30 some odd acre field that he always got white mold in. And he's like, piss on it. I am not doing, you know, soybeans on this area. Like ever again, like we're done with, so we're just going to do corn on corn. So he does corn on corn for 10 years. So the old man's like, I'm done. Like, you know, the kid, you can take over and do whatever you want. Kid's like, first thing we do, we're going to go plant soybeans on that. 10 years? Oh, it should be so good. Goes and plants soybeans. 10 years. Corn on corn. Gets absolutely crushed by white mold. Like edge to edge. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I thought the sclerosia were going to be all gone. Right. And you're like, nope, nope, that's not how it works. Gets crushed by white mold. And didn't get that extra high yield push. You're like, oh, you know, you planted on soybeans on native ground. You've got all this extra bacteria into there. I'll give you it to a little degree off of it, but you're not going to outlast white mold and you're not going to get that real big extra push off of it. It might just be something with the sto- the soil stability. And I don't think enough of us look at the, the importance of our roots. I think really that makes a bigger difference. How do you feel in a corn bean, corn bean rotation? How do you feel about residue management? For someone that's no-till, strictly no-till, would you prefer like a planter set up to have row cleaners, no row cleaners? Like how do you feel about residue when planting soybeans? Well, so I can tell you my personal feelings on it. I want the stuff above ground. Like that's my personal opinion might be the best, um, not etiquette, but the, the least amount of risk. The amount of, like, this is why I like the silage guys. Like, the silage guys just take it all off. You're like, I can handle that. But if you're just corn beans, corn beans, cash grain on that stuff, like, there's so much stuff out there. And if you're not shredding that stuff, like, we just need surface area. Like, I had um, I had a professor talking about surface area one time, and he was describing it to the group. And he's like, all right. So I go out and I buy, there's, what, 148 kids in the class. He's like, I go out and buy 148 cheeseburgers. I give all you one cheeseburger and I go one, two, three, everybody eat your cheeseburger. He's like, you'd have it done in like a minute or so, right? So if I went out and I bought the same amount of, you know, hamburger meat, you know, so 148 pounds, let's take it. And we take, you know, whatever the weight of the, the buns would be. And I make one monster, you know, like how they make those monster pizzas. Like I make one monster burger. And he's like, all right, I get crowd all 148 of you around that gigantic cheeseburger. And I go one, two, three, try and eat it. Well, you ain't going to finish it in a couple of minutes. Like it's going to take you hours to do it. It's because it's surface area. Like you just, you can't get enough people chewing on it. So it's the same thing that's on that residue. You're not going to reduce that residue down to dust in one year. Like we all know that. So if I do corn and corn or two rows of corn and then one onto beans or just one and one, 
you're going to have, you know, sometimes two, three years of, or two, three cycles of corn residue still out on those if you're just putting it on the surface because I don't have enough, you know, tension with the, the dirt. I've got to have oxygen, I've got to have dirt contact, and I've got to have moisture. Well, if I'm just laying on top, like you could just map that step over the years. And if you're not getting good um, breakdown of that material because it's small enough, like you could make a duff layer on those fields that, you know, would rival any of this stuff. You'd have a hard time pushing through it. Like when you would be planting, you'd be pinning that stuff down into the furrow off it. But now let's say you're, you're a regular, you know, even like a, a no-till guy, or you could even just be a regular, you know, uh, tillage guy. And you're like, I'm just going to work that stuff into the ground. The dirt, you know, now I got more dirt around off of it. And I go two inches down, two and a half inches down. How much oxygen are you getting down to break down that residue? How much water is sitting down at that area? And the moment you are working any of that stuff into the dirt, let's say you worked it two inches into the ground, two and a half inches of ground. The moment you're not hitting the next layer down, that's where you're pinning it. And that is going to dry at a different time period, at a different density, and you're going to have a different hardness at that. And now you're going to have residue on top of it. Now you've got to go plant into it. And any of your nodes that are going to grow and touch any of that residue, you're smoked. Like stuff is breaking that stuff down. And now you've got these vulnerable soybean roots growing into it. You get eaten. So personally, I like throwing it on top, but you almost have to make it smaller. Like it's, that's the better way of doing it. But there is no, there is no smoking gun. Like, as if there was, everybody would do one, one option. Right. Off of it. That's but why there's pros and cons of all of it. Just make it smaller. That makes it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Guys love throwing extra, you know, um, you know, not even binders, but like, you know, extra nitrogen out there. Oh, we'll feed those microbes, pump them up off of it, break it down. You might see minute to moat a distance off of it, off of it, but you still got to have water have oxygen right. and soil contact. I think that's just a tricky management question that most people don't have a good solution to. I mean, the strip tillers, obviously that's not true, 100% no-till, but I think strip till is a great option in those avenues. But people that strictly no-till, corn bean, corn bean, I think they, they struggle with that. And I think the beans struggle with it too. The beans get the short end of that. And yeah. even the guys that, as you work you know, to the kind of the west, as we get into like the driftless area or even get a little bit more topography, you guys have some drumlins and eskers on this side. But they've got more on the western side of the state. Once you get a little more topography and you're a no-till in that kind of stuff, you get a really late flush of water or we get a rapid melt of our snow. The amount of accumulation of duff in these areas on these little side slopes, oh, like you're talking four or five inches of you know stuff on there. So I've even had it already where the guy plants no-till off of it. You know, he works just a little bit. You know, you're open that furrow and close it. You got a little bit of like, um, they've got sidewall crushers now where you're smushing up, you know, the side of it, you know, closes a little bit better because that's one of the big hindrance of like the no-till guys is that you just can't close the furrow fast enough. So they, they're crushing the side, smush it into there, and then we get a four-inch rainfall. And they're like, oh, thank goodness I got all that stuff planted. Well, all that stuff just washes right on top of that furrow. Now they got to grow through it. They're all squirrely. Oh, no bueno. Yeah, not good. Yeah. <laughs> we have that problem here once in a while. <laughs> I mean, I can you go, like, just bullet point maybe some of your tricks to get the high-yield soybeans? Just, uh, like, snapshot So version? I would say it's not even so much of, like, the, the bullet points. I would say appreciate your soybean plant. That's what I would say is that like we all were like, I plant soybeans sometimes because I have to, right? You know, because I, I don't want to plant corn on corn. And so if you appreciate the plants, you'll, you'll look more at it. You're like, so I will, not that you got to go spray extra sulfur on it, not that I got to go spray extra fungicide on it, but those things help. But knowing what the issues are with your soybean, like if I'm, 
you know, elongating too much on those nodes. That's the first thing I fix. So like my populations, appreciate your populations, Fi- you know, figure out if it's, if it's stretching out too far and you're tipping over, don't go just pick a different variety, like fix that issue. If I'm not elongating and that carrot isn't anywhere past two inches of it, fix that first. Like appreciate that plant. You fix those two things. Like the differences between a two inch and a four inch carrot on that soybean plant, like is like 40 bushels. Like it's tremendous amount of yield off of it. So you fix that, like sky's the limit after that. Then you can, oh, let's throw some fungicide on there. For me, be like, hey, go throw, you know, some extra sulfur on there at this time period. Go throw fungicide out when it hits the 13th note. Like I can tell you that. Like, you know, Praxer is a fantastic fungicide. When it hits the 13th note, the leaf is open, go spray fungicide. Works almost every single time because it's nothing to do with disease. It's what it's doing physically to the plant. You're going to retain those leaves for longer. It's going to bring out more water. Like that's easy. But if I'm gaining, you know, two bushels here or I'm gaining four bushels here, five bushels there, and I'm not fixing those main issues that might be 20, 30, 40 bushels, like that's what you should be fixing. And if you're worried about diseases like, you know, or insects, pick out the ones that actually matter. Like white mold, that's one of the few diseases like tar spot now that we're scared of, you know, for corn and white mold and soybeans. Like there's very few diseases that are going to take, you know, dang near 30, 40% of your yield. We don't see that. Like you can get, you know, septoria, you can get a leaf spots as much as you want off it. That one, like white mold's going to eat your lunch. Like that's, worry about that one. If I'm going to spend good money, that's the one I'm going to spend my money on. So appreciate the plant. Everything else is relatively easy, but fix your roots, maintain that, that node spacing off of it. And once you get to that, if you spray a fungicide, spray it around that 13th node after that, that leaf is open enough. I love, you know, preaxer on it because it's got that headline portion because it's going to retain that leaf tissue, right? I just wanted to retain those leaves. After that, then it's, well, I'll tell you one more little snippet to it. So if I, so I, I'm, I do side cartography. Everybody loves maps. Like I really love maps. So I, you know, in my former professions, like I, I'm, I love ArcMap. Like that is, that is my, my niche here. You know, so when I first started with BASF, even like as a consultant early on, I was doing their harvest maps. You know, so when we were doing early aerial application, they were still hanging flags, you know, white flags out in fields. I'm like, we should just draw some maps around them and I'll put them on a GPS and give it to the pilots and then go spray it. Like that's way, way easier. That's what, that's what I did. So I looked at a lot of harvest maps early on when headline on alfalfa first came out, like we did hundreds of trials when we had, you know, headline amp come out or even like when, um, you know, Praxer first came out, we looked at all of these varieties and corn and soybeans, you know, like then I got some like apple trees and all sorts of goofy stuff. But when you start looking at maps on soybean plants or on soybean fields, if I draw a polygon on the west side or the north side or the east side, I could just randomly draw circles on that soybean map and I could give you a two bushel difference. There was no treatment difference, but I could give you about two, 2.5 bushels difference, no matter where I drew that circle on that map, no matter what. So the amount of standard deviation that I physically see from my past, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trials is that if something isn't going to add 2.5 bushels consistently on my farm for my soybean plants, standard deviation. I don't want to touch it. So if somebody's like, hey, bushel here, bushel here, it doesn't cost you very much money. If it doesn't go over 2.5, standard deviation. Standard deviation in corn, it's about seven bushels. Same thing. I can draw you anywhere you want on that. I can give you seven bushel difference in corn. Those are your thresholds. So like if you're adding incrementals, you're like, I'm doing my roots right. I'm doing my spacing rights. I'm doing my popular. I'm comfortable in that. And I want to take the next step. If whatever I'm adding 
isn't giving me two and a half bushels in soybeans or seven bushels in corn, standard deviation. Don't don't spend good money after it. Don't chase that because those incremental ones are like, oh, if I add five, you know, two bushel ones, is that going to give me 10 bushels? It's not. Go find the bigger issues, appreciate that plant, and you'll do way, way better. I think that's a good insight. I mean, I think a lot of, and we get caught up in that too, where we, you get a product presented to you and you're like, oh yeah, this will add five bushels. And then we get in this chase where we're constantly adding more to chase two bushels, six bushel, whatever. And, right. and really there's the, behind the scenes, there's a lot bigger problems than this two or five bushel we're trying to gain. It's amazing at how big a difference just the structure of that plant makes into it. And then you throw a little bit of weather into it. Like you don't get to control the weather. You control everything else though. But that really makes the bigger difference. I'm fired up about some things now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's something to appreciate because nobody likes soybean. Like you go find somebody who really likes soybeans and you're like deep down to your legs. No, 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 nobody likes soybeans because they're so frustrating. And the reason they're so frustrating is that you're like, we've spent all this money on breeding them. They should be stronger. They should be more robust. You're like, these things suck. Like they're so wimpy. And you're like, Ugh. But I would say, I mean, out of my customer list, there's very few people that are in that next tier of yield. You know, you've got 50, 60, 70, but then there's two or three people that are in the 80 and above type class. So, you know, where corn, Lucas can probably say this, he's got a lot of growers that hit 200 bushel corn every year. It's like a disappointment if you don't get that. So, I don't know. I think I think soybeans are much harder to manipulate up the class. I think once, if you take a little bit, not that we're not taking time because it, like once we hit May, like it's just chaos. Like this, this year literally, like it feels like it finally ended since this last May. Like it was just like chaos. Like one, one farm to the next, you're like just trying to put out fires, right? But if you were like, hey, each week I'm going to take like one field, I'm going to look at it for like 10 minutes. You do that over the course of the year. You're like, dude, like it's now like that habit. It's a weird habit. Go dig, go dig 15 plants in one guy's field. And you're like, this is like the upper tier guy. This is the mid tier. This is the low tier guy. Just from looking at that physical plant, like once a week on different locations, like it'll be eye opening. You're like, there is so much variance out here. And now you're going to start figuring out why it's, it only gets easier after that. Like the yeah. frustration goes down, but you're like, you only get more questions, but you take that as a, like the appreciation of that plant. And you're like, I'm going to take time to physically look at this plant. And why does this guy, why is this guy growing 80 bushel beans? It's not the variety. It's not as maturities off it because everybody can pick those. It's what's physically oh, that plant it. is doing yep. it. Yes. Yep. I like that. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up. We want to thank Wade Omekin for coming out. Um, nice talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you.